everybody. Welcome to the June 28th edition of the Connect Online Meeting. It is so very good to be with you here tonight, as always. Um, Eric's here tonight, man. Good to see you. How you doing? Doing well, thank you. Good to be here. Good deal. We got Brother Melvin Ote with us tonight. We'll get to Brother Melvin here in just a moment. It's good to see him back. Been a minute. He's a busy man to catch up to, but we are glad to have him tonight. I'm looking forward to his lesson. As I said, we'll introduce him more in just a second here. Um, tonight, uh, if you would, please take a second to do all that like, sharing, and subscribing. Hit that little notification bell. All those little interactions uh, help with the video. Uh, that's what they tell us anyway, uh, is that every time you comment or interact with the video or subscribe, any of that kind of stuff, helps the video get noticed and hopefully gets a, gets a little more spread of the video. But uh, certainly that sharing portion of the like, share, and subscribe is a great direct way you can help out spread, help spread the word about what's going on here at Digital Bible Study uh, every night. So we would appreciate it if you would do it. Uh, the links to our social media platforms are found in the description of the stream that you are using right now, whether that be audio or the, vi the video streams. Uh, and so take a look at those. We'd appreciate it. And as always, if you think the work we've been doing here for the last couple, three years on Digital Bible Study is uh, worthy to keep going, uh, I haven't said it in a while, but just keep in mind, we are not a church ministry. We don't go out and raise money or, you know, uh, go around any of the churches. It's it's two guys and a website. And it's just Eric and I trying to keep this thing running. Uh, and we need your help. So if you could, would consider subscribing to the website or go to our locals page, well, website, digitalbiblestudy.org, uh, the locals page, uh, digitalbiblestudy.locals.com are the two best places uh, to help us out there. Again, links are in the description. So having said all that, I will throw it over to Eric and we'll go from there, man. Well, again, good evening, everyone. We're going to say a word of prayer at the end of our session tonight, as we always do. It'll be my privilege to lead us in that prayer. Jonathan will keep a watch over the feed, and we will um, pray with you and for you. Uh, we are always very, very thankful to give our Father thanks, as well as praise for his goodness. While we do petition him, obviously, but we uh, certainly want to praise him and thank him as as often as we can and uh, offer intercessions for others and on behalf of others. And so we want to do that as well. And we'll be glad to do that at the end of the session tonight. That said, we turn our attention to our speaker. As mentioned, Brother Melvin Ote is here with us. Melvin, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be with you guys again. It is always a joy to have you, man. Uh, for those who don't know you, if you would, please refresh the people on your, your work, yourself, your family, anything you want to share. Well, I'm a husband and a father of two boys. Uh, that's the most important thing I have going on in life is my family. Uh, in addition to that, though, I, I like to preach, and I do preach when I am called upon to do so. And I also teach law at Faulkner Law and uh, also continuing with my, my own formal Bible study. So those things keep me busy. Uh, my family, my preaching, uh, my teaching work at, at Faulkner and my own studies. Uh, it is uh, always good to have you, man. Uh, did your wife graduate recently? Did I read that or see that somewhere? No, she hasn't graduated. She is working on her um, master's in biblical studies. So everybody in my house is in school. So uh, when, when school <laughs> is in, I mean, it's it's a busy time for all of us. Everybody in my house is in school. Man, that that's, uh, that's fantastic. Anybody who knows you and your family, uh, knows the, the premium uh, on education and learning. And uh, 
we are thankful to see that expressed right. so well uh, when we hear you uh, teach and share God's word with us. What will you be uh, preaching about tonight? I want to think about Jesus as the friend of sinners tonight. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Uh, I'm just curious, since you mentioned your own studies, what, what are you studying now on your own? Well, I'm working on my uh, my Ph.D. in biblical studies. So I put that on hold for some time and I kind of started feeling like if I don't get this thing going in a minute here, I'm not going to get to it. So uh, sort of I dove back into that. I took a break from my, my formal studies when I went to Faulkner because I had to do all the the writing for legal writing and all that kind of stuff. You know, the things you have to do to get tenure. Um, but once I got that kind of, I felt pretty good about where I was with that. I, I went ahead and got back started on my formal studies. Now, it, it could be just my ignorance, which I don't mind sharing and, and showing at this point. But would you go a little further in that, your writing for tenure as a professor? How does that exactly work? Well, one of the requirements to become a tenured professor is publishing, right? You have to sort of, you have to establish yourself as an expert in some field, right? That's that's one of the biggest requirements. It may be the, the toughest one, the one that most people would fall short in. Um, so I was a practitioner. I mean, I was, I was a trial lawyer. I wasn't an academic. Um, so I sort of wanted to make sure that I took the time to orient myself, got an understanding of, of what is required. And then I had to, of course, write all these academic scholarly pieces and have them published. Um, you got to do that or they don't give you tenure. Uh, so anyway, you know, that, that took a lot of my sort of intellectual industry down the legal direction, which practicing law is one thing. Writing as an academic is another thing. So, again, I took a few, several years to make sure I was on top of that. And I enjoy that, but I enjoy biblical studies more. So once I got on top of that, then I took that mental industry that I was applying to legal scholarship. And now I'm applying it to biblical scholarship as well. So I'm writing scholarly stuff, legal and biblical. I see. I'm not exactly thrilled about the way we're presented things as we grow up in our nation. We just hear the word lawyer. And that's about the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> lawyers, lawyers do a lot of things, man. Law degree yeah. goes along. It goes. It's a very wide reaching kind of a degree well maybe some point we just have you come on and talk about law man try to explain some of that stuff we need more christian lawyers we don't need more lawyers but we need more christian lawyers i'm happy, <laughs> I'm happy to encourage that i'll buy that well man i won't take any of your time and any more of your time i should say but uh love picking your brain about about many things man so we're looking forward to the sermon tonight yes sir uh, just real quick before we turn Melvin loose here, I uh, did hear an update from uh, Robbie Jr. today about Robbie Sr. And uh, actually it was from uh, Robbie's daughter, I believe. Uh, and they were able to shock his heart. Uh, there was no further blockage, just some pericarditis, I believe they call it. Uh, and that apparently has cleared up. They've got the rhythm back going well, and hopefully he'll be out either uh, today or, or uh, tomorrow or the next day and back home. So that sounds very good. Uh, and then do not forget that we have the cogitation blog coming up 
our uh, podcast rather coming up in the eight o'clock hour. So stick around for that as well. So with that being said, not take up any more of your time, Melvin. Floor is yours. Go ahead and start preaching when you're ready. All right. I appreciate giving me a, a few moments to think with you about Jesus. Of course, everything we do in life, if we're doing it right, finds its meaning in his life and the expression of the heart of God that he's shown us when he walked upon the earth. So I want to think with you about uh, Matthew chapter 11. And again, I want to talk about Jesus as the friend of sinners, but the, the, the passage that provokes this thought is in Matthew chapter 11 and beginning at verse number 16. There the Bible says, but to what shall I compare this generation? Jesus speaking. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge or a funeral song and you did not mourn. For John came either eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And so we see some of Jesus' critics referring to him as a friend of sinners. The particular verses uh, that I just read, they follow hard on the heels of Jesus having commended John the baptizer. So earlier in this chapter, uh, just a few earlier, he's declared that John was Elijah. He's the person who was promised to come some four centuries earlier. You think about Malachi chapter four and verse five, for example. Um, so he said that John the baptizer was a great person, a great preacher, a servant of God. And then in verse number 16, Jesus turns his attention to the character of the people who were listening to him. And uh, this passage that I just read, particularly verses 16 and 17, um, sometimes is referred to as the parable of complaining children. And so Jesus is noting that he and John had taken different approaches. He says John was a great man, a great preacher, great servant of God. But John operated differently than Jesus did. But the people who heard John and heard Jesus, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, they largely rejected both men. OK, so the parable can be has been interpreted in a couple of ways. It, it kind of shakes out to be the same thing either way, but it's been interpreted a couple of ways. First, some people understand Jesus and John as being represented by these two groups of children. Right. So one group plays music and celebration, and then the people don't join in, they don't dance, they don't celebrate. The other group sings a funeral song, and the people don't mourn along with him, uh, with the group. So when you read it this way, the parable seems to emphasize a difference in approach between John and Jesus. Um, but when you read it the other way, then the children represent the spoiled crowds that are demanding different things. Jesus and John, and then receiving those different things that they've demanded, they're still not satisfied uh, with the way that either of the two people respond. Um, again, I don't know that it matters exactly which way you take that. Maybe the second way is more consistent with uh, the introductory question that Jesus asked in verse 16, because he says, to what shall I compare this generation? So his focus seems to be on the people, and so does the subsequent explanation. But Jesus says about John that he came neither eating nor drinking and to the extent that the people called for John to lighten up, to you know, prophesy smooth things, he used to do that. 
And he wasn't the kind of person maybe who associated with people very easily. He lived in desert places, wilderness places, away from the masses. And he warned people about judgment and wrath and fire baptism. I mean, he wasn't the kind of person that uh, most folks were going to gravitate toward. Well, Jesus spoke of similar kinds of things, but he associated with people a lot more comfortably, a lot more consistently. He was one of the common people. He was among the common people. So uh, you think about these two ministries, right? John the Baptist, he calls people to fast over their sins. And Jesus is calling people to feast because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, these two things are closely related, right? They're two sides of the same coin. They approached the delivery of these messages um, in some different ways, though. Um, so Jesus was very familiar with people. John, though, is, you know, somewhat of a wild man, right? He's dressed in camel's hair and he's locusts and wild honey. He's not very accessible. He's not the kind of person maybe who laughs easily. You're not going to be comfortable being around John and, you know, not addressing your sin problem. You remember he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. I mean, he's the kind of person who's very confrontational um, and there's a place for that. Uh, but that's the way he approached things. And the folks who were listening to him largely rejected that. Well, Jesus approached things in a very different way, much more easy relate to, easier to be around. He was still going to confront people's sin problem, but he wasn't going to be quite so in your face about it, uh, at least not usually. And both of these approaches were right and proper for the respective missions of the two men, right? But the people had, by and large, taken issue with both. The people he's talking to, they rejected John, who was just giving it to them sort of without any kind of uh, assuaging of their of their uh, feelings and so forth. He's just right in their face telling them, hey, here's the problems. You need to repent. You're going to bust hell wide open. And then here is Jesus being a lot more sort of personable and accessible, telling them the same things. Here's the thing, though. The people didn't listen to either one. They accused John of having a demon. And then they charged Jesus, what we just read here, of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, a friend of sinners. Jesus was called a lot of things um, during his earthly ministry. And we can see him being referred to in lots of ways in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a lot of the things uh, the designations that are put on to Jesus are complementary. The people who called him a friend of sinners did not intend uh, that designation as a compliment. I want to think with you about this idea of friendship for a few moments, because we, we use the word friend, I think, in some pretty loose ways today so that it's easy for people not to mean the same thing when they use the same word. Well, I, I find in my studies that even in the, in the uh, old Testament, the word friend has a, a wide range of meanings. So you don't sort of have, uh, I can't just say to you, here's what it means to be a friend. And that's exactly what it'll mean in every context, but in its fullest sense, friendship has ingredients. You have association, that is just being physically proximate to somebody. Uh, 
You have affection. This is your tenderness of heart, your endearment for someone, how you feel about the person. And then there is allegiance, this idea of loyalty, which is being there for someone. Okay. The term friend in the Bible, uh, as you see it in your English translations, it can be used with respect to just associating with people, just being physically proximate. So you'll see in your Old Testament, uh, the word friend or companion or neighbor. Um, sometimes maybe depending on your translation, you might see the word fellow. And those are coming from the same Hebrew word, which basically just means to associate with, to be friends with, to be a companion to someone. I'll just show you an example of this. If you look at Exodus chapter 33, and um, I think this is a, probably a familiar uh, verse to folks, but if you look at Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, the Bible says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned in again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. But the text says that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And I think the only thing that's being really communicated there is, you know, a person speaks to someone who is a neighbor or proximate to them you know, close face to face. And that's how close and intimate communication was between God and Moses. So you have association. Okay. That's one level of friendship. And maybe we say, you know, if we just went to school with somebody, we say that they were our friends, or if we live in the same neighborhood as someone, we say that they're our friends. That doesn't mean that we're especially close. It just means that there's some proximity, a higher form of friendship involves affection in addition to association. Okay, um, you can see this. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, or let me see here, Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 6. All right, in Deuteronomy 13 and verse 6, the Bible says, If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known. And he's basically saying that if they try to entice you to do something wrong, then you need to, um, person's going to have to be punished and you're going to have to sort of lead the charge in punishing them. But the point is he's talking about folks who are related to you by blood, your brother, your, your brother, your son, your mother, your daughter. And then he says, your wife, and then he says, or your friend who is as your own soul. Okay, so this is something different than just being nearby. This is something different than just being a neighbor. This is somebody for whom you have a significant degree of affection, someone who is dear to you. That is a higher level of friendship than just being physically proximate. But the highest of friendship involves obviously some kind of physical proximity or association, uh, also this idea of affection, but this idea of allegiance or loyalty as well. In this sense, a friend is someone who has a commitment from the heart and that that, and that commitment is expressed in practical ways, right? Sacrificial, caring, loving, serving kinds of ways. This is someone you can depend on. You are a friend to someone not just because you're nearby, not just because you have some tender feelings for them, but because they can depend on you in need. The book 
Proverbs has a lot to say about friendship. It's an interesting study just to see what the book of Proverbs has to say about friendship. But Proverbs 17, 17, again, pretty familiar to most people. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Well, those two ideas are parallel. A friend, a real friend, loves at all times. Well, what kind of times might be under consideration here? Well, the second part of that verse tells us a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at tough times, difficult times, the kinds of times where it's not convenient. This is the idea of loyalty, the idea of allegiance. In Proverbs 18, there's so many of these, and I won't look at all these, but I just want to mention a couple so that you're not maybe trying to take my word for it. Proverbs 18 and verse 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. See, the, this proverb here says, well, there are natural ties between people, but those natural ties can actually be superseded by the ties of willing devotion and companionship. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This idea of friendship is a pretty dynamic term, right? And we can use it in some different ways. And we do use it in different ways. We sometimes are just talking about people who are nearby, casual acquaintances that we happen to be kind of friendly with. And sometimes we're talking about people that we sort of have some kind of tender feeling for, some affection for. But then when you get down to this idea of loyalty and allegiance, see, most people don't have too many of those. This is the highest form of friendship. And you can see this being depicted in scripture like uh, Ruth. She chose to associate with Naomi over her own countrymen. She chose her affection for Naomi as she chose to have affection for Naomi as if she was her very own mother. And then she chose allegiance to Naomi, even when Naomi's prospects appeared to be pretty bleak. Right. When she came back to Israel with Naomi. Naomi didn't have very good prospects. As a matter of fact, Naomi tried to discourage her from coming and told her she did not have very good prospects. But Ruth chose to be with her anyway. This is the highest form of friendship. You see the same thing with Jonathan and David, right? Jonathan chose to associate with David even over his own father, who was the king. He had affection for David. Even the Bible says they had a love surpassing the love of a woman. I mean, they were really close in their affection for each other. And ultimately, Jonathan chose allegiance to David when it could have cost him his own life. Right. Saul wanted to kill Jonathan because he chose to associate so closely and to have this kind of loyalty for David. So I think you can see just in our own lives, there's this sort of range of meanings with friendship. And you can see that depicted in the Bible text as well. Now, here's the point. The people who called Jesus the friend of sinners, they didn't mean to compliment him. Friends have a great deal of influence on each other. You can tell a lot about a person um, by the company that they keep. You've probably heard it said that, you know, you can tell a lot about a person from his friends. Uh, George Washington is uh, credited with having said that you should associate with men of good quality if you esteem your own reputation. Because you know, folks are going to judge you by the company that you keep. And the Bible uh, does warn us about that, right? The Bible tells us to be careful about the company that we keep. First Corinthians 15, 33, of course, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Um, 
Proverbs 13 and verse 20. It, um, whoever walks with wise people will be wise, but the companion of fools will smart for it or will hurt for it or will come to harm. Um, Proverbs 24 and 1, don't be envious of evil men. Don't desire to be with them. There are lots of passages that warn us about the company that we keep. All right. Because you, th there's a potential for you to be influenced negatively, but people are also going to sort of make judgments uh, based on the company that you keep. So when the Bible warns us about friendship with the world, for example, in James 4 and 4, um, we know that there's a good reason for that. You have to be careful about the kinds of friends that you keep in life. Bad friends are not going to be reliable. You know, bad friends are going to help you to live more like the world. Bad friends not going to be people that you can depend on. Bad friends make you look like a bad person. All right. So when we think about powerful this concept of friendship can be, um, then that maybe helps us understand when Jesus critics say he's a friend of sinners, um, they're wanting to associate him with publicans and sinners in a way that would discredit him, in a way that would make him look like a person who couldn't be trusted, a person of low morals himself and so forth. Um, but you know what Jesus did? He associated with publicans and sinners. He, he was actually exactly what he was being accused of being. Jesus was actually a friend of sinners and not just in superficial ways. See, they look at him and they say, well, he's eating and drinking with publicans and sinners. OK, well, that's just something different than being in physical proximity. OK, because just the fact that we happen to be in the same restaurant, that's not what they're talking about. This was an intimate thing to sit down at table with folks and enjoy a meal or consume a meal with someone that was considered an intimate thing. Um, Take a look at let's let's take a look at Matthew chapter nine. I, I just look at a couple of these verses because I'm saying to you that they intended to say something derogatory Jesus, and the thing that they were saying though was actually true. Um, they just didn't appreciate just how true it was. Maybe Matthew chapter nine, okay, verse number nine. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "Follow me." And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners because Jesus was concerned about tax collectors and sinners. He was obviously up in a world where there were sinful people. Just because he was in the world with sinful people, that didn't make him friends with them in the way that he was being accused of. He cared for sinful people, people who were living openly rampant sinful lives. Jesus cared for those people and he made it his business 
to try and associate with them in a way that he could help them. When they ask the question, why is he doing this? Jesus says, well, people who are not well, they need my help. And so he associated with people so that he could try to help them. Look at uh, Luke chapter 19. And I, maybe I won't read all of this, but in Luke chapter 19, Jesus has this encounter uh, with Zacchaeus, uh, beginning at verse number one there. And let's read a little bit of this, okay? Jesus is passing through. Uh, he enters Jericho and he's passing through. Verse number two, behold, there's a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich, okay? Now, he, Jesus has been accused of associating with publicans, tax collectors, and sinners. And here is Zacchaeus, who is a chief tax collector, a chief publican. Now, look at this. If you'll go down to... Uh, verse five, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. I mean, he's walking by the man, but that's not going to be enough. He's actually wanting to spend time with this man who's thought to be a sinner by uh, those around. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, listen to this, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus was being accused of associating with sinful people. And you know what? He did associate with sinful people. Now, I don't know that Zacchaeus was actually a sinful man. He defends himself and says, you know, hey, listen, I, I do things in an upright manner. And if I happen to make some kind of mistake along those lines or I fall short, I do what I can to correct it. So I don't know that he was actually a sinful man. But listen to Jesus' response in verse 9. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to your house since he is also a son of to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Why is Jesus associating with people who are well known, recognized as being sinful folks? Because Jesus came to help. You can't be a friend to people, at least not in the highest sense while keeping your distance from them. You know, it's not enough to just be able to sort of, well, I work with people who are not Christians or I live in a, in a community where there are folks who are not Christians or, you know, I got some people in my family who aren't quite right. And I mean, I'm around them. That's not really friendship in the way that Jesus would be a friend to publicans and sinners. Jesus was eating with people. He was spending time with people in their homes. I say to you, Jesus was being accused of associating with people, but Jesus was doing more than that. He had an allegiance for lost people. You look at uh, John chapter 15, John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this. That's that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, this is the highest. This is the highest form of love, not just association, not just affection, loyalty, allegiance. Jesus, is, this is the highest form of friendship here. He's going to lay down his life for these people who other folks look at and they say, well, he's a sin. These are sinners. These people aren't worthy of your time and attention. Well, Jesus says, I'm going to give my life for. In Romans chapter five and verse eight, Paul says, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
this is the highest form of friendship. Jesus came not just to be around sinners, not just to be polite to sinners. He came to help people. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to he came to those who were sick and infirm spiritually and otherwise. I just say to you, these folks were criticizing Jesus. Um, but what they said was true. They just didn't appreciate just how true and how profound what they were saying was. Now, having made these observations, Jesus, the friend of sinners, I want to think with you for a few moments about what that means for us. Because Jesus was criticized at times because of the friends he kept. Um, but Jesus offered the highest form of friendship even to sinners, specifically so that he could help them to come to a better understanding of who God is and what God expects of them, help them to repent and be saved. Consider his example. Okay. He regularly kept company with people who had largely been disobedient to God's word. Jesus regularly kept people, kept time or company with people who were disobedient to God's word so that he could help them spiritually. On a daily basis, then, what does that mean for us? I mean, Christians should be building familiarity and trust with people who do not know God, building that familiarity, building that comfort through their upright living, by encouraging conversation, by a loving demeanor. Um, but we should be doing that, moving out into the world and interacting with people as friends to lost people so they can so that they will someday be able to have the joy and experience the fulfillment of being a Christian themselves, even under difficult circumstances. And this tends to create teaching opportunities. Um, if you look at uh, just a couple of things here real quick, if you look at First Peter, chapter three, first Peter, chapter three. And I want you to. Let's see here. Start at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He's talking about, listen, the world doesn't appreciate you. The world is going to move in on you. The world is going to give you a hard time. In verse 15, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet you do it with gentleness and respect. The point is, we know that the world is not a godly place, okay? The nation is not a godly place. Our communities may not be godly places, but we're not called to be the followers of Christ sort of in the dark. We're supposed to move out into the world, into our communities, and associate with people so that we can help them to know Jesus. And when they see that we live differently, that we talk differently, that we think differently, some folks are going to ask, well, what's going on with you? What's so different about you? Well, that's the way Jesus did it. And that's the way we're supposed to do it. I won't read it, but in first Corinthians chapter nine, uh, the passage really always sticks out to me. Uh, beginning at verse 19, Paul talks about sort of his methodology. And he says, you know, to the Jew, I became as a Jew and to the 
the uh, Gentile or the uncircumcised, I became as a Gentile, uh, people who were under the law, then I, I knew that they respected the law. And so I tried to deal with them in a way that was commensurate with their respect for the law. And so people who didn't know the law, of course, I didn't worry with that, about that with them. And he says, to those who were weak, I became as weak. He made it his business to move out into the world and associate with people who had very different backgrounds, sometimes very different backgrounds than his own. And he did what he could to, to associate closely with them so that he could help them. And I'm saying to you, that's what Jesus did. And that's what we should be doing. Um, now, while we're emulating Jesus in this respect, uh, I think you, you, we do have to remember a couple of things here. Jesus' goal was not to be popular. That was not his objective. Jesus was not um, dealing with people so he could make new friends in one of these lower senses. And so our objective has to be to cultivate relationships with people who don't know Christ, who may not respect the Bible, who may know nothing about Jesus and about Christianity. Our goal should be to cultivate relationships with them for the express purpose of influencing them for good. That is the purpose, to be salt and light in a world that doesn't have salt in a world that is shrouded in darkness. So that's our purpose, right? So I want to make sure that I'm clear about that. I'm not suggesting that it's your function to go out here and try to be popular or be known by everybody for the sake of being known. I'm saying, no, your, your purpose is to go out into the world and associate with people specifically so that you can help them. So you can demonstrate loyalty and allegiance to God and to them. The second thing, obviously there are limits, okay, to how far a believer can go in trying to grow closer to someone who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't love Christ. There are places Christians ought not to go and there are activities that Christians ought not to engage in. I sometimes you know, shorthand this and I say, I can't go to hell with you to try to get you to come to heaven with me. Okay. They're just, they're just some things that God doesn't permit me to do, doesn't permit me to engage in. So I'm not going to participate in those things, but you know what? I think it's a cop out that we sometimes use when say, well, I can't do those things. And we treat that as if that means we can't do anything. That's not true. There are limits. I recognize that. You watch for your own soul. Consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing you can do. There's a lot we can do and a lot we should be doing. Okay. So, you know, we shouldn't use our desire to convert someone as an ostensible excuse to enter into a romantic relationship with them, right? Like I, I see people do that sometimes. That is just at least unwise. I mean, at a minimum, it's unwise, but this is, you never see it functioning that way in the Bible. Like your objective is to reach a soul. So you enter into a romantic relationship with them and hope that, no, that's, that's not the way that's supposed to work. OK, we don't like go to raucous parties and stuff like that or go go to environments where people are engaging in all kinds of debauchery and all that, because we want to. I've heard people say, like, well, if you'll go here with this bar with me or this club with me, then I'll go to church. It's like, nah, we'll have to figure out something else. There are limits. OK, but as the peculiar people of God, my my suggestion here is that we have to remain separate from the works of darkness we have to remain unspotted from the world 
but we do actually have to move out into the world and be friends to sinners. It's not our job to sort of hold up in our buildings and sort of only associate with people who look like us, think like us. Um, that's not really why we're here. We're here to advance the kingdom of God. And we can't do that by only associating with having relationships with people who are already in the kingdom of God. And one of the reasons this is um, sort of on my mind, and it stays on my mind, but one of the reasons this is on my mind is because the world seems to be increasingly bifurcated, one thing or the other, with us or against us. My party or you're the devil, you know, uh, it's, we, we don't seem to have in our society at large, this ability to understand that just because someone doesn't see things exactly as I see them, just because they don't have the same values that I have, um, that doesn't make them my enemy. And I'm saying to you from a Christian perspective, that ought to be a motivation for me to be their friend. It's the opposite of what the world does. Now, I see this in the world where people do this us versus them thing and can't even have a peaceable conversation with folks who don't agree with them about things that really matter. OK, don't agree with them about things that really matter. Um, I see that in the world. I see that in the church, though. I see too much of that in the church. Um, I mention it because it's distressing to me. It may not be distressing to anybody else, but it's distressing to me where if somebody doesn't agree with me on something that is really important, I can't find enough love for God and them in my heart to speak peaceably to them or to make it my business to grow closer to them so that I can help them because that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul says he did. That's what we're supposed to do. I think we're struggling to do that sometimes. And so I want to just remind us that's what Jesus did. Jesus was called a friend of sinners and people might call us friends of sinners. Some people might not understand, but that's all right. We want to do things the way Jesus did them. So friendship is not limited to human relationships only, obviously. Friendship can occur between human beings and God, okay? Abraham is described as being the friend of God. And Jesus explained that it's possible for human beings to be his friends. In John 15 and 14, you are my friends if you do what I command, okay? He demonstrated, Jesus demonstrated, association, affection, and allegiance for the human family through his death. And we, demonstrate association, allegiance, and affection for him through our obedience. And one of the things he calls us to do is to follow in his footsteps to be friends of sinners. I hope those thoughts are helpful. Um, it's good for me to remind myself of these things. And I hope that, you know, maybe it helps you to think carefully about uh, how you see your neighbors, the people who disagree with you about certain things and uh, how you treat people. Because ultimately how we do this, how we interact with people is a reflection on Christ. 
and we can show the love of Christ or we can uh, make people have a misunderstanding about who Jesus is by our behavior. Thank you very much for your time and attention tonight. Brother Melvin, as always, man, thanks for being with us tonight. That was um, that was a great reminder. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure we are all distressed, as you say, about these matters. And uh, it's great to be encouraged and reminded about them. I don't know when it was several months ago. Now we heard a sermon on uh, compassion. And this just kind of puts me in the mind of that again. Those sermons that are just great reminders of the kind of hearts we're to have, the kind of attitudes and disposition. And it's challenging. It really is. But it's great to be reminded. And we appreciate you coming on and reminding us of that tonight. Well, I'm happy to just sort of share my thoughts with folks. I mean, I have to think about these things myself. And I, I sometimes say, you know, people just hear me if they ever hear me preach. It's just me talking into a mirror. They're just listening to me talk to myself about what God wants me to do. And if it helps them, then I'm happy for that. But it has to work on me first. Amen. I tell people every sermon begins behind the pulpit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Keith Mulder told us in class one time that preaching is the greatest psychological exam that you'll ever undergo. Is, yeah. is it, you, you reveal more about yourself by what you say and what you don't say. Than, than you right. did, perhaps you intend to mean. So well, I appreciate it tonight, Brother Melvin. I, as you're preaching, I know you're talking about friends, but I, I noticed as I was growing up, probably when I was pretty started to notice it when I was like 15, 20, something like that, somewhere in that range, right as I get into an adult, adulthood, what I just considered to be the cheapening of the word family, everybody's family. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's kind of what I was sensing in this t- term of friendship because we do the same thing with friends. Oh, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. You know, that's that's I like how you talk about those different stages, those different levels of friendship. And 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 it's not always what we the way we use the term in a vernacular sense is not necessarily exactly how the Bible uses it. And I, I just uh, appreciated the reminder. Yeah. Yeah. Good to see you, man, as always. As yeah, always. I appreciate you, brothers. I'm happy to uh, happy to help when I can. Yes, right. sir. Well, give your family our best, man. Proud of them and the good work that they're doing as well. I will do it. Uh, you'll do. You guys will do the same for me. Yes, sir. sir. Yes, sir. And if everything works out, Melvin, we're gonna try have you, try and have you back on as we talked about before the show. We're gonna try and have you back on in a couple of weeks to talk about uh, the the abortion issue and uh, your perspective on that will be greatly uh, uh, greatly appreciated. So we're aiming for july 15th everybody and if we can get everybody's schedule arranged that's when we'll do it but give us a few more days to get all the details worked out and if that works we'll be uh, we'll be good to go on friday night the 15th for that so thank you for tonight little brother melvin thank you for coming on great thank you sir it's to the point now where i do not remember when i first met brother melvin i don't remember Heard about him, heard about him, heard about him, never met him. Then I met him, and now it seems like I there's never a time I didn't know him. But well, I mean, well, there was a time at some point I didn't know him. But well, my, mine's uh, the opposite. I don't think I've ever met Melvin in person. He's another one of really? the people that I have met on on uh, doing Connect and Digital Bible Study. So, um, yeah, I, if if we've ever been in the same place together, I don't remember it. So, uh, yeah, hopefully that will change yeah. in the future, though. Man. 
class, man. Class. That's that's Brother Melvin. Yeah. Class. Uh, when I grow up, I'm going to have half his IQ. That's what I'm going to have when I grow up. It's true. <laughs> yeah, you what? Yes, sir. Uh, good to have him. Always good to have him. Yeah. All right. And he uh, did that quickly. It seemed like, it seemed like it would take you and I a lot longer to do that. It would. Because he he did it calmly and succinctly, both you and I would get worked up. (laughs) I mean, you and I would spend half half the sermon waxing the elephant to try and (laughs) make the point. Uh, I saw a a comment from uh, the excuse that he's a lawyer, and that's why he's so got to get in, get that closing argument done well, get in and out. I did see, uh, I think it was Trish put a comment in about halfway through the lesson. She said something like, I can't find it right now, but it was something like, I love the way he delivers a lesson. It feels like he's just talking to me. As opposed to. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, man. And that is a unique skill. And it's a really good skill for online streaming because strangely enough, I'm the only person sitting here in this room. You're, when you're when you're doing a stream type thing, you're not talking to a hundred people, five hundred people. You're talking to one person, or is it Terry that always puts how many people are show or watching? And Terry sometimes has nine, so <laughs> there's that as well. Anyway, we got eight minutes to get off here before Tony comes on. Don't forget the cogitations coming up here at the top of the hour. So let's go ahead and get our attention turned to the, uh, the prayer request. Um, I guess I have well five. Uh, total here, uh, Robbie. Obviously, as we mentioned in the in the in the open, uh, Angelina um, is um, uh, she says continue to keep my daughter flow in prayer as she uh, as it nears her entry into the army. Uh, eight years, I guess she signed up for an eight year term. Wow, isn't the standard term four? It depends, but typically it's four. I think the army sometimes go as low as two, I think. But uh, well, that, two, that, four. That is, that is commitment right there. Well, good. All right. That is flow. Uh, she'll be going to Fort Leonard Wood, Leonard Wood, rather, in Missouri. Uh, Trish uh, is under contract for a house. Trish has been looking for a house for a little while now. So she has found a house. Um, she's under contract um, in Marion County, Florida, rural area. A brand new structure. Good deal. Uh, so she's asking prayers about that as well. Uh, Loretta uh, is, um, her island is under a tropical storm warning um, and uh, a lot of rain. And she says, Don't just pray that it does not get worse. And that's the first of I've heard of, heard of any activity in the Atlantic Caribbean basin there. And what hits Loretta about a week later has a good chance of impacting me so i'll have to start paying attention to the weather now but uh, we'll pray for you loretta on that um no mention on dale uh, she went to barbados the other night was that what we prayed about the other night dale went to barbados for cataract surgery Does that sound right yeah that sounds familiar sounds so, right see an update on that but um that was also on the prayer list this week uh and then angelina is asking us to pray uh for her family uh, her mother-in-law, Zula, um, is now under hospice care. All right. Give me just a second, because uh, I, I um, yep, I think that's everything. Okay, you're good. 
Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, hallowed be your holy and righteous name. Uh, Father, we are just grateful and thankful to be your children. Always blessed, Father, to be here and to hear your word preached. We are thankful for the men who prepare themselves and uh, study your word, apply it to their own lives and strive to live it out and are so capable and able to teach it, preach it, and share it with us. Thankful for Brother Melvin and the presentation of the way he handled your word tonight and preaching it, reminding us of the goodness of our Savior, his love, his concern and compassion for sinners. And pray, Father, that as we were reminded tonight, we will take that sermon into our life, take the words, take the example of Jesus, and follow it and to get outside of our buildings, outside of ourselves, outside of maybe even what's comfortable, and to be among those who don't know you and uh, strive to befriend them that we might be the salt and the light that you would have us to be in this world. We're thankful, Father, for Robbie's improvement. Pray that it will continue. Pray for his family and pray that he will uh, resume his normal uh, course of life as well and resume again one day preaching your word faithfully. We are prayerful for Angelina, her daughter Flo, as she enters into the army. Father, we're thankful for our armed services, the men and women who serve this nation uh, and to strive to protect it and to keep her safe. We just pray that you will bless them and be with them. We pray especially for those in the household of faith. We pray for Flo, that all will go well with her enlistment uh, we're mindful, Father, and we give thanks for Trish, who has uh, sought to uh, obtain a property. Thankful that she has done that and pray that all will go well with her closing. And again, we pray that she will use that, Father, not simply for her life. We're thankful for that, but that it might be a tool used uh, to aid those who don't know you, to be a blessing uh, to her and to those around her. Uh, we're prayerful for Loretta and all of those within the uh, storm's path. Pray that that will not uh, have great danger associated with it and pray that uh, Loretta and all of those involved will be saved from harm. We're also mindful and saddened with Angelina and her mother-in-law, Zula. We just, we are confronted with, with loss and those who are sick and infirm. And as we know that this world is not our home, it's always challenging, always difficult to, to go through the process uh, of, of losing someone and watching life decline. We just pray that you'll bless the family, pray for no pain, and we pray and give you thanks ultimately for your solution for death, the resurrection of our Lord. We pray that we'll find comfort and hope in that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.